Chapter 5 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 5 Occupations. Quote, all nations have their message from on high, each the messiah of some central thought for the fulfillment and delight of man. One has to teach that labor is divine. Close quote. By Lowell. Such is the mission of the Republic, for there are few drones in the Republican hive, and these are not honored. If a man would eat, he must work. A life of elegant leisure is the life of an unworthy citizen. The Republic does not owe him a living. It is he who owes the Republic a life of usefulness. Such is the Republican idea. During the colonial period, the industries of America were cramped and repressed by the illiberal policy of the imperial government. The occupations of the people were necessarily confined to those connected with the cultivation of the soil. The varied pursuits which now distinguish the republic were unknown. Quote, the colonies have no right to manufacture even so much as a horseshoe nail, close quote, was the dictum of a leading English statesman. And, in accordance with this doctrine, the early settlers were hampered by restrictions which, but for their injurious effect on American industries, would appear ludicrous to us of modern times. The manufacture of hats was forbidden. The making of paper gave offense. And even the weaving of homespun cloth for domestic use was regarded as indicating a rebellious spirit. Iron could not be manufactured beyond the condition of pig, and none but British vessels were permitted to trade with the colonies. But do not let us reflect upon our motherland for this. Even in pursuing this policy she was not behind her day. What were colonies for unless to be of direct advantage to the country which created and fostered them? Why should Britain undertake new outlets for her people and her commerce if her children were to prove ungrateful and defeat the only end the parent land had in view in nursing them to life? Such was the accepted view of the time in regard to colonial possessions. It is to the credit of Britain that she now sees how futile is the attempt to extend commerce through colonization or to interfere with the internal affairs of her children she permits them to foster what they please to trade freely with all nations upon any terms the colonies fix for her own trade with them true it must be said her offspring were not very grateful children they turn against their mother with surprising harshness when desired financial aid requires it. Our Canadian friends flatter the dear old lady into opening her purse strings to give the spoiled child what she begs. 
Canada is very dutiful upon such occasions, but she taxes her mother's products all the same to foster manufactures upon her own soil. The Republic boldly puts on a tariff and announces that she means to have within herself the manufacturing facilities which distinguish her parent, and to beat her in manufacturing if possible, and she has become the greatest manufacturing nation the world has ever known. I like this boldness. Having set up for herself and being a free and independent state, the Republic has a right to do as she pleases. Canada's hypocritical and ungrateful conduct merits and inspires only contempt. She has no business to tax her good mother's manufacturers to protect her own, but if she does it, she should at least cease her loyal whine and announce in honest fashion that she intends to assume the responsibilities of national existence and no longer to rely upon her mother's assistance. But why talk of Canada, or of any mere colony? What book, what invention, what statue or picture, what anything, has a colony ever produced, or what man has grown up in any colony who has become known beyond his own local district? None. Nor can a colony ever give to mankind anything of value beyond wood, corn, and beef. If Canada and the Australian colonies were free and independent republics, the world would soon see the harvest of democracy in noble works and in great minds, and for the mother of these nations the result would be infinitely better even as to trade. Besides, she would be far prouder of her progeny, which in itself is not a bad return for a fond mother like her. If Lord Rosebery were to succeed in his amusing Imperial Federation fad, which happily is impossible, these nations in embryo would be stifled in their cradles. Imagine the great democratic continent of Australia really subject to the little island, and to the funny monarchy and its antiquated forms. I have heard before of the tail wagging the dog, but it must have been a very big tail and a very small dog. Britain will form a very diminutive tail to Australia of the next generation. No, the English-speaking continents of America and Australia and the parent Britain will be separate political communities, but one day linked together in a league of peace, one provision of which will be that all international disputes shall be settled by it. With the independence of the Republic came the natural reaction of the suppression of occupations just spoken of. The reaction has not quite spent its force even to this day, so hard is it to eradicate national bitterness which springs from oppression. With surprising energy, the people began to turn their condition of colonial dependence into a condition of national independence, industrial as well as political. The long European wars which followed fostered the embryo industries of the Republic by hindering the importation 
of European manufacturers, a result further assisted by a tariff, and, though disaster followed this system of overstimulation, the eventual condition reached was eminently satisfactory. By the year 1830 many industries were firmly established, and since that period their development has proceeded with the regularity which even the terrible civil war was unable to check. The occupations of the people of half a century ago appear strangely primitive when contrasted with those of present times. Indeed, the difference is more like that of five centuries than five decades. Take as example the shoe manufacturer at Lynn, Massachusetts. Fifty years ago, a visitor to this village would have heard the beat, beat, beat of many hammers issuing from small wooden sheds erected against the sides of the houses. These were the sounds of the disciples of St. Crispin working away, with last upon knee, and making perhaps one pair of shoes per day. During the summer the same men became farmers or fishermen, and the village ceased to resound with the shoemaker's hammers. The present city of Lynn, with forty-five thousand inhabitants, has numerous fine buildings of great height and length, which are the lineal descendants of the little wooden sheds of fifty years ago. In these, boots and shoes are made by the million, and with hardly any handling by the sons of St. Crispin. Machines now do all the cutting and hammering and the sewing. Massachusetts is the shoe state par excellence. In 1835, according to Mulhall, there were in the state 30,000 more bootmakers than in 1880. Yet in the latter year, the factories produced boots worth $70 million, 14 million pounds, more than they did in 1835. Changes equally great took place in the nature of work in textile industries. In 1830, woolen, linen, and cotton manufacturers were largely conducted in the household. In Hinton's Topography of the United States, we read that, quote, many thousands of families spin and make up their own clothing, sheets, table linen, etc. They purchase cotton yarn and have it frequently mixed with their linen and woolen, blankets, quilts, or coverlets, in short, nearly all articles of domestic use are chiefly made in the family. It is supposed that two-thirds of all the clothing, linen, blankets, etc., of those inhabitants who reside in the interior of the country are of household manufacture. It is the same in the interior with both soap and candles. But many forces were at work revolutionizing the industrial methods of the day. The steam engine was gradually replacing the water wheel or supplementing it, when winter bound fast the rivers, thereby ensuring the employees' regularity of work in factories and releasing manufacturers from the incubus of idle capital during half the year. Then railroads and canals were rapidly increasing the facilities for distributing the products of manufacturing centers. Further great improvements in machinery placed manual labor more and more at a discount. Thus, in 1834, 
a spindle was spent on an average from one-sixth to one-third more than it did a few years previous indeed it was said in eighteen thirty four quote that a person could spin more than double the weight of the yarn in a given time than he could in eighteen twenty nine close quote and so there resulted a complete change in the manner of life of the people instead of working with the old-fashioned spinning wheel in country farmhouses or the hand-loom in the rural cottage spinners and weavers gathered together in large towns and here we have one cause of the great growth of towns as compared with the country which has been referred to in a previous chapter a large proportion of the people fifty years ago were engaged in agriculture another pursuit in which mechanical appliances have since worked a complete revolution the transformation is shown with startling vividness by two extracts Quote, among new inventions to increase the pauperism of england we observe a portable steam threshing machine Close quote. new york evening star august eighteen thirty four quote dr glenn of california has forty five thousand acres under wheat on this farm is used an improved kind of machinery each machine can cut thresh winnow and bag sixty acres of wheat in a day molehall's progress of the world page four ninety nine eighteen eighty in view of such a contrast we hardly need the assurance of mr h murray who writing in eighteen thirty four says quote, agriculture is in its infancy in the united states Close quote. the statement which follows is also interesting quote, the country he adds is covered with dense dark woods even the state of new york is still three-fourths forest Close quote. Well, since that period the expansion of agriculture has been phenomenal the farms of america equal the entire territory of the united kingdom france belgium germany austria hungary and portugal the cornfields equal the extent of england scotland and belgium while the grain fields generally would overlap spain the cotton fields cover an area larger than holland and twice as large as belgium the rice fields sugar and tobacco plantations would also form kingdoms of no insignificant size and such is the state of advancement reached by american agriculturists that molehill estimates that one farmer like dr glenn or mr dalrymple with a field of wheat covering a hundred square miles can raise as much grain with four hundred farm servants as five thousand peasant proprietors in france notwithstanding this it is pleasing to know that not even with the advantage here implied are these gigantic farms able to maintain the struggle against the smaller farms owned and cultivated by families the republic to-day is as it ever was a nation of workers the idlers are few much fewer than in any other great nation a continent lies before the american awaiting development the rewards of labor are high and prizes are to be won in every pursuit 
the family which strikes out boldly for the west settles upon the soil and expends its labor upon it may confidently look forward to reach independent circumstances long before old age the mechanic with skill and energy rises first to foremanship and ultimately to partnership or business of his own as the country fills these prizes naturally become more and more difficult to secure but the very knowledge of this acts as an additional incentive and impels men to quote, make hay while the sun shines close quote. the american works much harder than the briton his application is greater his hours are longer his holidays fewer until recently a leisure class had scarcely been known and even now a man who is not engaged in some useful occupation lacks one claim to the respect of his fellows the american must do something even if disposed to be idle he is forced to join the army of toilers from sheer impossibility to find suitable companions for idle hours one conversant with the mother and child lands is particularly struck with the difference between britons and american in this regard if a party of educated and agreeable gentlemen are wanted to join in a pleasure excursion twenty are available in britain to one in this high-pressure america the american has always so much to do even when the family leaves home in the summer the man returns to town every few days to hammer away at something the english gentleman on the contrary seems always to have a few days he can call his own for pleasures ladies are equally available upon both sides of the ferry the american woman seems to have quite as much leisure as her english sister i must not fail to note however the signs of change which begin to appear a small number of the best men of this generation especially in the eastern cities having inherited fortunes now devote themselves to public cares not necessarily political as a briton would infer and discard the lower ambition of adding more to that which is enough the roughest and most pressing work that of clearing and settling the land has been done to a great extent and the influences of refinement and elevation are now patent everywhere it is thus that a free society evolves that which is fitted for its highest ends the census of 1880 shows that the number of persons pursuing gainful and reputable occupations was over seventeen and a quarter millions or thirty-four and one-half per cent of the total population this proportion is greater than that shown by the census of 1870 each census is no doubt taken in a more thorough manner than the preceding one the last being the most complete enumeration ever made of any people but even allowing for this it is evident that owing to the extensions of the factory system the increased division of labor and especially to the greater number of occupations open to women a larger proportion of americans are now at work than ever before 
the increased employment of women is very marked. In 1880, the ratio had increased to 1,190 as against 1,000 in 1870, nearly 12%, while that of men increased only from 1,000 to 1,067, less than 7%. It is clear that the American woman is steadily conquering her right to share with man many occupations from which she has been excluded. But her advance is, I fear, in no less degree indicative of a growing necessity to swell the earnings of the family. Lothian Bell, when in America, remarked that he had heard always of great inventions made in manufacturing by the Americans, and of their wonderful aptitude in this department of industry. But he found, after all, that Britons had done a large part of this work. This is corroborated by the horseshoe machines of Mr. Burden, a sturdy Scot, Mr. Thomas, a Welshman, who first smelted pig iron with anthracite coal, Mr. Chisholm, of Dunfermline, Scotland, who has created the extensive steel rail and steel wire mills at Cleveland. Isaac Stead, an enterprising Englishman, who first wove tapestry in Philadelphia, Mr. Wallace, founder of the famous brass mill at Ansonia, and many others. It is indeed quite interesting to note how great a proportion of the manufacturing of America is controlled by the foreign-born British. Forty-nine percent of all Scotch and English in the United States are engaged in manufactures, a ratio much higher than that shown by any other nationality. Immigrants from British America are also widely occupied in manufacture, the ratio being 44%. Native Americans are mostly engaged in agriculture and contribute but 19% of their number to manufacturers. 43% of the Irish-born are engaged in personal and professional services, so it can still be claimed that Britons do the manufacturing of the world, and we must credit to our race not only the hitherto unequaled sum of products of our native land, but to a large extent the still greater sum of the republics. Nineteen of every hundred Native Americans engage in manufacturing occupations against forty-nine per cent of these tough islanders, just three times as many in proportion to numbers, a ratio which is probably substantially maintained in their progeny. We must not let the Yankee claim all the credit for the manufacturing supremacy of his country. What would it have been but for the original stock? Democracy is entitled to all, for there is not in all the land one who is not a Democrat. But as between the native and important Democrat, the strain of British blood never excel if yet equaled, must be credited with more than its due share. See, my countrymen, of what your race is capable when relieved from unjust laws and made the peers of any under republican institutions? Man is a thing of the spirit. The westerner who weighed two hundred pounds when drowsy and more than a ton when he was roused 
is exactly like the man born under a king and denied equality at birth compared with himself when he was invested under the republic with the mantle of sovereignty the drowsy briton becomes a force here the earnings of the people compare as follows with those of england where labor is better paid than elsewhere in europe average in the cotton mills in england nineteen shillings seven pence per week in america twenty-four shillings one pence per week now the average in woolen mills in england is twenty-six shillings seven pence per week in america forty-three shillings three pence per week the artisan average in england is thirty-one shillings zero pence per week in america new york fifty-four shillings six pence per week in america in chicago fifty shillings six pence per week the average per annum of operatives of all kinds is thirty-five pounds six shillings one pence in england against seventy-three pounds in the united states messrs clark and company and coates and company the extensive thread manufacturers of paisley scotland who have similar mills on this side have stated in evidence that the wages paid in their american mills are fully double those paid in paisley in all branches of the iron and steel manufacture wages here are fully double what they are in britain the cost of living has been much greater in the republic not that the working man cannot live here as cheaply as in britain but that he will not do so large earnings and certainty of steady employment lead to increased wants and to their gratification the workers demand better houses and furniture better food better clothing more books and newspapers and spend their larger earnings to secure these there are one hundred and seventy five thousand pianos organs and harmoniums annually made in america and three-fourths of these remain in the country nothing is more suggestive than a fact like this showing as it does that thousands purchase these instruments which those in similar positions in other countries would never dream of possessing the relative cost of living in britain and america has been subjected to a great change during the past few years in favor of the latter it is astonishing how cheap the food and clothing of the masses have become though food of course never was as high as in britain for most of this goes from this side it was in clothing that the american was at a disadvantage articles of similar kind are now asserted to be quite as cheap throughout america as in britain house rents have fallen very much indeed the best authority we have is mr josiah d weeks secretary of the western iron association an englishman by birth who spent much time upon the other side investigating this important subject i give his letter to me start of letter pittsburgh pennsylvania december sixteenth eighteen eighty five my dear mr carnegie 
absence from the city has prevented an earlier reply to yours regarding relative cost of living in the united states and great britain the purchasing power of a dollar in the hands of an american workman is considerably in excess of what its equivalent would be in the hands of an english workman that is a dollar will buy more food in the united states than four shillings one and a half pence will in england it will buy considerably more flour as you know but little bread is bought in this country compared with the amount bought abroad most families here baking their own bread more meat provisions bacon ham vegetables eggs butter cheese firm products of all kinds tea coffee more oil a little less sugar in many parts of the country more fuel as to dry goods and clothing it will buy more sheeting shirting prints or calicoes and as much of many kinds of clothing such as working men wear but in other cases less house rents are higher here it is of course to be understood that i am speaking so far as relates to clothing of the grades that most working men buy of course imported cloths cost more as does what is called high-class tailoring i made a very careful estimate once with the following result items of expenditure percentages of the expenditures of a family of a working man with an income of three hundred to one hundred and fifty dollars sixty pounds to ninety pounds a year subsistence sixty four per cent clothing seven per cent rent twenty per cent fuel six per cent totally ninety seven per cent so far and then sundry expenses three per cent from one hundred and fifty to six hundred dollars that's ninety pounds to one hundred and twenty pounds a year subsistence sixty three per cent clothing ten and a half per cent rent fifteen and a half per cent fuel six per cent giving a total so far of ninety five per cent leaving the sundry expenses to five per cent note the above is from the report of the massachusetts bureau of labor statistics now i estimate that on subsistence the american workingman has an advantage of at least twenty-five per cent on clothing nothing on rent the british workingman has an advantage of thirty-three and one-third per cent and on fuel and sundry expenses i concede an equality then take the above table as representing each one dollar expenditure of the american workingman relative expenditure of an american and english workingman in the bracket where the income is three hundred dollars to four hundred and fifty dollars per year for subsistence the american will pay sixty four dollars the english eighty clothing the american seven dollars the english seven dollars for rent the american twenty and the english thirteen dollars for fuel six dollars for the american and six dollars for the english and sundry expenses 
the same three dollars each now for the income of four hundred and fifty dollars to six hundred dollars per year for subsistence the american will spend sixty three dollars the english seventy eight point seventy five dollars for clothing ten point five for the american and ten point five for the english for rent the american fifteen point five dollars the english ten point thirty seven dollars for fuel the american english both will spend six and for sundry expenses both will spend five so the totals for the lower wage bracket the total is one hundred dollars for the english one hundred and ten dollars for the upper income bracket the american will spend one hundred and ten dollars and the english one hundred and ten dollars and sixty-two cents that is if the relative modes of living in england and the united states of two classes of workmen are the same it will cost ten per cent more in england than in the united states but the english workman as a rule does not live as well as the american and it is just here that the fallacy exists in the statement that it costs the american workman more to live than it does the english it does for he lives better spends more money but this is not the true basis of comparison the real question is in which country will one dollar or its equivalent purchase more of a given article of consumption of a given grade i answer unhesitatingly on the whole in the united states very truly josiah d weeks end of letter as a rule the american working man is steadier than his fellow in britain much more sober and possessed of higher tastes among his amusements is found scarcely a trace of the ruder practices of british manufacturing districts such as cock-fighting badger-baiting dog-fighting prize-fighting wife-beating is scarcely ever heard of and drunkenness is quite rare the manufacturer in america considered it cause for instant dismissal and is able to act and does act upon this theory thereby ensuring a standard of sobriety throughout the works during all my experience among working men i have rarely seen a native american working man under the influence of liquor and i have never known any serious inconvenience or loss of time in any works resulting from the intemperance of the men even on the fourth of july the blast furnaces are run with accustomed regularity and if the glorious fourth be passed successfully all other temptations are naturally harmless it is upon independence day if upon any day in the calendar that the laboring citizen feels impelled to give vent to his feelings in violent demonstrations of irrepressible joy this calls to mind the story of one of the principal ironmasters of western pennsylvania in the days gone by passing his mill on the fourth on his way to church as a patriotic duty for in those times churches were open for service on that day and preachers were accustomed to torture the american eagle till it screamed he heard the sound of 
busy hammers clanking rivets up stopping his buggy he listened a moment in doubt then alighted and walked to the spot to find a party of men hard at work repairing a leaking boiler at work on the fourth of july degenerate republicans when he was on his way to church to thank god for establishing the inalienable rights of man he was the son of an englishman and his father had left england because of his republicanism he could not stand it but cleared the mill of every man swearing he would not have a man about him who would work a stroke upon the sacred day his remonstrance to the manager was no less emphatic what are you doing he roared repairing boilers to-day aren't there plenty of saturday nights and sundays for this kind of work to his last day that manager never completely regained the respect and confidence of my dear old patriotic friend this desecration of the fourth although forgiven was never forgotten the settlement with the offender too was only partial for my friend while admitting that the manager was a competent man always had a qualifying but at the end of the eulogy and the but as we all know had reference to the one unpardonable offence the human bees in the american hive work in four grand divisions first seven and three-quarter millions are detailed to tickle mother earth with the hoe that she may smile with a harvest and to tend the herds and flocks the cattle upon a thousand hills and the sheep in the dewy fields through which wander the complaining brooks making the meadows green a pleasant healthful life is this redolent of nature's sweetest odours full of the rest and quiet of peaceful primitive days these toilers grow the roses of life and are to be much envied and if the farmer's life in america is a life of toil it is none the worse for that it is the idle man who is to be pitied the farmer is the man rejoicing quote, who holds his plough in joy Close quote. next to these envied out-of-door workers comes the second division the manufacturers three million eight hundred thousand strong about half as many as the devotees of ceres these hardy sons of vulcan every form of inventive genius or of mechanical skill finds fitting occupation in this army variety of pursuit is a vital consequence to a nation and we find it here pent up in mills and factories from morning to night begrimed with smoke and dirt amid the ceaseless roar of machinery these cunning toilers fashion the things conceived by the mind of man from pins to anchors in this class are embraced those who literally live in the bowels of the earth who down deep in unfathomable minds rob the earth of her hidden treasures and drag them forth for the uses of man it is notable that while in agriculture only seven per cent of the division are females in this branch the ratio is no less than sixteen per cent 
Women do so much of the lighter manufacturing work in America, more than 600,000 being so employed. This division excites our sympathy. Their work is the least pleasing of all. Shut out from the sky and closed in mine or factory, they seem banished from nature's presence. This is the class of whom we should think most in our Sunday regulations. On that one day let it be through nature that they look at nature's God. To shut up within walls on the seventh day, the prisoners who have been incarcerated all the six would be cruel. Is there no reformer who will act upon the assertion that the groves were God's first temples, and take the toilers there in their only day of liberty? The annual camp meeting in the wood is fast dying out, yet it had its advantages. Poor men and women got a glimpse of nature there. The service division, which comes next, slightly outnumbers the preceding class, for it reaches four millions. The professions, the minister, the doctor, the lawyer, the author, etc., are all embraced. Fortunately, the noble profession of arms, that means the butchering of men, need not be counted in the republic. The domestic servants are in themselves a host. The Irish take to this branch much more generally than any other race. Of course, the percentage of females is here far greater than in any other of the main divisions, 1,360,000 domestic Amazons being enrolled, or one-third of the whole. The fourth and last industrial corps is that conducting trade and transportation, numbering a million and eight hundred thousand, only sixty thousand of whom are females. These, combined, constitute the seventeen millions of working bees who make the honey of the national hive in which there is no room for those who toil not, neither do they spin. In that hive the drones are not stung to death at intervals, they are not suffered to come to life. If a specimen happens to escape the massacre, and walks about doing no useful work to justify his existence, the public regard him much as the countryman did the dude, masher, whom he saw for the first time promenading Broadway. Lor, what a lots of queer game one sees when one leaves home without his gun! There is an inherited suspicion in the Republican breast that the only thing good for the useless, idle, fox-hunting, pleasure-loving man, as well as for the state, if not be to shoot him, is at least to bounce him. When the fair young American asked the latest lordling who did her country the honor to visit it, how the aristocratic leisure classes spent their time, he replied, Oh, they go about from one house to another, don't you know, and enjoy themselves, you know. They never do any work, you know. Oh, she replied, we have such people, too. Tramps. Quote, Allah, Allah, cries the stranger, wondrous sights the traveller sees, but the greatest is the latest, where the drones control the bees. Close quote. It was evidently not the democratic division of the English people 
which the eastern traveller visited, but the poor oppressed land of monarchy and aristocracy, where honest labour naturally ranks below hereditary sloth. End of chapter 5 Occupations <laughs>